another great thing too is what people don't realize, and this is true of all marketing, um, not just in real estate, is you have to touch the potential client multiple times. They say usually anywhere between seven to 12, I've seen different articles, um, seven to 12 times before they're willing to do business with you. I'm Neil. And I'm Brittany. We are a family on a journey towards financial and location independence. Each week, we interview successful real estate entrepreneurs about their chosen investment strategy and rate it based on how much money it took to get started, how long it took to educate themselves, how passive it is, and whether or not they could do it from anywhere in the world. Welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. If you like our show, the easiest way for you to give back is to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions on how to do that. We would be so grateful. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Our guest today is the founder of Titan Wealth Group. He got his start in real estate as a wholesaler, and he's now helping investors buy into self-storage using syndications. Fernando, welcome to the Road to Family Freedom. Thanks for having me, Neil. Of course, of course. It's great to see you again. So let's get right into it. When you started off with real estate investing, what was your chosen uh, strategy and why did you choose that strategy? Yeah, so um, I started off wholesaling properties in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. For those out there that don't know what wholesaling is, I put a purchase agreement on a property and then I assign my purchase rights to another buyer for a fee. So I, the reason I started with that method was it doesn't take a lot of capital. I think I started with $1,500 on a mailing campaign. And we could circle back with how I got that $1,500 because it's a crazy story. Uh, but what really led me to get into this was when I was 16 years old, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And from that moment on, I knew I, I wasn't going to be an employee. I was going to start my own business. Um, at the time, I didn't know it was going to be real estate, even though the book used real estate as the main example. Um, yeah. And then so went to college. Uh, both of my parents are from Brazil. So not going to college wasn't an option <laughs> when I told them I wanted to you know, be a business owner. They, you know, my dad said, go to college, get a degree. And then that way, if the business thing doesn't work out, you can always fall back on your engineering degree. So, so let me sort of reiterate what wholesaling is. You, you go out and you market for houses. Uh, you look for the owners. You get the, the home under contract. You essentially agree to buy it, correct? Yep. yep. And then, earnest money. Yep. And then you go and find another buyer to buy it for slightly more, correct? Yep. Correct. And, so you, and then you collect a wholesale fee. Um, which hopefully is hopefully is more than what you what you've got put, to put down, for. right? <laughs> and the key is that you're not really having to. The most typically, what you're having to put down is earnest money. You're not having to put down a deposit. I mean, you deposit the earnest money. It's the the end buyer that you're selling it to is that's putting up all the capital. Yeah. So when I started in Iowa, I was using as little as a hundred bucks for earnest money. Now in Chicago, just because it's a competitive environment, we go anywhere between a thousand and three thousand dollars for earnest money. I'm still learning a lot about real estate investing and different things, so I'm kind of like the newbie on the podcast. But whenever people talk about wholesaling, in my brain, it's like lots of properties at the same time. Do you do them in like chunks, or is it really just like one property and one buyer? 
Yeah, so um, we don't really mess with portfolios very often just because it's a lot of underwriting and it's a lot of capital needed, especially from the earnest money side, but then also for our buyers. You know, they're very picky about what they do and what they don't do. So right now it's just a lot of one-off properties. Every once in a while we'll get small portfolios and owners retiring he has three or four properties but nothing crazy. Yeah. Are these being sold to like flippers or what kind of? Yeah, both. Yeah. So we, about 60% of our deals are fix and flip deals, but we do get about another 40% are buy and hold sometimes with uh, tenants already in place. Sometimes they're vacant and the investor is going to put a tenant in place after it rehabs it. It's kind of the way that I like to go just because passive income, you do the work once and then it keeps paying you out for the life of, of the asset. Uh, whereas the buy and hold, or I'm, I'm sorry, the fix and flip, you do get these nice, you know, really sexy big chunks of, of change, but you have to constantly be working. And my goal is to be retired by the time of 35. So I don't want to be managing, you know, contractors. There's a lot of good contracts out there, but there's also a lot of bad ones that if you're not, you know, watching them like a four-year-old, they're going to take advantage of you. We know what watching four-year-olds is like. Yeah. <laughs> They're kind of jerks. Yeah. <laughs> they can be. They can be. They can be. And then all of a sudden cuter. they're sweet and they're yeah. a lot cuter. They're a lot cuter than contractors. I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not I'm not gonna cuddle, I'm not gonna cuddle with my contractor. <laughs> Uh, so we're, we're big believers in beginning with the end in mind, like a, a destination. And you just mentioned that, but can you tell us about where real estate is taking you? Where's your destination? Yeah. So the big picture is I'd like to be able to travel for six to nine months out of the year. And so to do that, I'm, I'm going to need passive income that's coming in monthly. Um, Originally, I was started building a portfolio using single family and multifamily homes, but more recently, I've, I've been shown the light of self-storage facilities and how they truly are passive. Um, a lot of people use the word passive for rental properties, but for the landlords out there, they know that it's not, it's not very passive unless you have an amazing property manager that is willing to take you know, everything on the chin. All right, so we'll get into the self-storage as well, but I want to I want to zero in. I want to keep sort of talking about the wholesaling. Wholesaling is the the strategy to use when you're getting started in real estate, where you're just starting out and you have no money. And, and that's obviously what you did. How much knowledge did it take you to get started? Yeah, it took me qu- quite a bit of knowledge. So, kind of going back to that story I was foreshadowing, I was working out in Iowa for a Fortune 50 company. And I had read a few of the Kiyosaki books. He has other ones other than Rich Dad, Poor Dad, where they, they kind of hint at these different strategies that you use, but they don't really go into depth for explain, explaining how to do them. But then one day I decided to quit my job and I uh, had about three months runway in the bank account. So that's groceries and rent. And you know, Google must have been following me because all of a sudden this little ad pops up that says, you know, free Robert Kiyosaki event this weekend in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, lunch will be provided. And, you know, I was like, hey, I already got to start saving on groceries. So free lunch sounds good. And if, if it's not what it turns out to be, then at least I got a free lunch out of it. And, you know, it's one of those things where you go to the free event, then they upsell you to a three-day event, and then they upsell you to master classes. So I, I went and I decided that I was going to, I was going to take the master classes 
However, the price tag was extremely high. It was about $30,000 for the five classes that I want to take. And I took basically market segregation and analysis. I took a wholesaling class. I took a lease options class, a marketing class, and then a commercial properties class. So I didn't have $30,000. So what I did was before I truly quit, I still had a pretty good credit score. I think it was like at 770 or something. And I went out and I applied for 64 credit cards in like an hour and a half. Oh, Jesus. And, oh, yeah. Don't try this at home, kids. Yeah, yeah, there's much better ways. Um, So of the 64, I believe in the first round, 12 of them got approved. And I waited till they all came. And then I did, they come with these cash advance checks. And I cash advanced $97,000 into my checking account. So that's how I started. That was my startup funds for the real estate company. You're giving me anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So so 30 grand immediately went to the classes. Now looking back, I wouldn't have done that. And I know I'm kind of jumping the gun here on one of your questions, but now what I would would have done and what I tell, you know, I mentor a lot of new wholesalers as well. What I tell them is find a wholesaler out there that's already where you want to be not too far ahead. So not a guy that's wholesaling 500 properties a year, but maybe a guy that's doing, you know, 10 to 30 properties a year and just offer to offer your time to him or her and in exchange for the knowledge. I actually did that uh, in tandem with my classes and I learned a lot more from my mentor than I did from the classes. Yeah. I, I mean, class, Classes and mentors, we obviously think are important and they have a place. And at the same time, when you think about it, a $30,000 price tag is like the same as like a semester or a year in college. Like this is a lot of money. Um, And if you're not feeling like you're getting out of it with the knowledge that you need. I mean, like I, I had that situation even with like my nutritionist certification that was like five grand. I got out of it and I was like, Hey, I know a lot about food. I don't know how to actually coach anybody about it. So now I need to do another one and probably would have been good to just like get with another nutritionist and basically do the one-on-one with them because that's a lot of the skills that really, you know, are the most um, helpful and useful. But what I find is that, you know, there's, there's no need to reinvent the wheel in these classes. I don't regret that I did it because it, it caught me up to speed really fast. But they're just basically teaching what's already in books that you could buy on Amazon for 10 bucks, And then the combination of the book plus a mentor. Like my very first activity I did for my mentor when I was wholesaling was I woke up at five in the morning for him to go put door hangers onto doors. And then I just asked him, why am I putting these door hangers on doors. And he said, this is how we find the off-market sellers. This is one of the strategies. And every time he would ask me to do something, and I would always ask, why am I, I have no problem doing this, but why am I doing it? That's amazing. That's amazing. Is there a book that you recommend as far as like wholesaling goes that you feel like Uh, would be that $10 Amazon buy to get started? (laughs) Let me get back to you. Do you guys have like show notes or something? Yeah, we'll do show notes. I have read some great ones. I've read some really terrible ones too. So my bookshelf is actually in the other room. So (laughs) I don't want to walk away. We're we're not going to talk about it here as well because I don't want to get Fernando in trouble, but Uh he has the most ridiculous audible strategy around. Um, (laughs) We'll we'll talk about it offline. Oh, okay. I want to hear about it afterwards. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the things I can say is um, 
I love books. I'm a voracious reader and now even a voracious listener because, you know, I'm driving mm-hmm. a lot. So Audible has an unadvertised plan where instead of paying the whatever it is, the 16 bucks a month to get one book at the beginning of the month, you can pay like a flat 200 or 210 bucks and then they give you 26 credits on January 1st or whenever you start. Ah. Um, I was crushing through books and I couldn't wait a whole month to get the next one. Yeah. Um, that's a, something super cool if you, if you check it out. Um, yeah. Big, we, I'm a slow reader, but I listen to a lot of books. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. We get like, we're like grandfathered into like an older rate, I feel like, sort yeah, of. Yeah, it's about 20 bucks a month and we get two books. Uh, we get two credits a month. So, so I guess it's probably similar to about what your yours, yours is just you're paying up front. You're getting them yeah. up front. Up front. Up front. That makes sense. And you don't have to like wait for. We just we have such a backlog of. Yeah, I'm I'm mostly listening right now because I have a. <laughs> yeah, well, he has a drive, and then I was yeah, like a stay at home yeah. mom, so like I didn't listen to him as much for a while because I didn't have a job. Yeah. Get but, Audible, yeah. kids! It's fantastic. Yeah, I have like maybe 150 books in my Audible. I mean, you've seen it, Neil. So there's yeah. oh, it's lovely. some on in there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, that's awesome, though. All right. So I actually just, I want to touch on something briefly about wholesaling that I always that always comes to mind is that so often like it's it's thought of as a beginner strategy, and well, it's the easiest strategy because you don't need any money, and I actually think that it's 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 good in that way, but it actually it's a lot harder than it looks because you need to know a lot know how to market for deals. You need to know how to negotiate. You need to know how to evaluate, underwrite a property, and you need to know how to come up with sort of construction, like what it's going to cost to rehab a place. And then you need to know how to like find end buyers. So it's, uh, it's, I think it's still a, a good beginner strategy for somebody who's motivated and has got time and things like that. But it's something you really need to go in with your eyes open that, that it's, it's hard and it's hard work. The, hard, the yeah. wholesalers I know bust their butts. Yeah. Spoiler yeah, alert. I, when, yeah. <laughs> when we do our scorecard at the end of this podcast, <laughs> the time and knowledge Monica might be a little. High. Well, how much, <laughs> as far as like, you, you know, how long did you spend on that mentorship like how long were you doing that before you really started yeah so I quit my job and then within I think within maybe six weeks or so um I wholesaled my first property and so I found it off of a mailer that I did so at the time I lived downtown Des Moines so I would walk over to the courthouse and I would physically pull records off of their terminal for probate cases that had property attached and it was crazy how much I was learning every day because I, I didn't even know what to do. So I walked in and had to talk to like six different people how to use the terminal and they kept mm-hmm. switching me over to other people. I finally learned how to do it. And after four hours a week, you know, I would I would come with, together with a list of maybe 100 names to mail to in that county. And I would send out the mailers. And at the time, I was doing everything myself. I was printing the paper. I was stuffing it. I was licking the stamps, putting it on there. Um, and I I'd still have my time I'm everything timed out. I can do a hundred letters like from beginning to end in an hour and 47 minutes. Um, the reason I timed myself is once I started hiring people to do it for me, and I wanted to make sure that they were performing at a good, good. Yeah. two hours, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Pro tip, yeah. use a sponge on your envelopes. <laughs> <laughs> I learned the hard way. Yeah. Um, so, 
you. That's, that's, how I, uh, that's how I started. And I got a deal, but I didn't have any buyers. So this is when I went to my mentor, Mark. And I said, hey, Mark, I got a deal. Now what? And he said, I'll, I'll find you a buyer, but I get, I get 50% of the fee. And I said, okay. Um, so he, he helped me find a buyer after two weeks. I wholesaled the property for five grand and I kept 2,500. All right. Well, so you already told us how you, how you finance that first deal. How do you safely finance your deals now? Hopefully more safely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, we have a pretty aggressive strategy in our business. A little over 50% of gross revenue goes back into marketing costs and earnest money funds. Uh, so, and now our, you know, our assignment fees are a lot larger. I don't even I know this is bad to say, but I don't even get out of bed unless I'm making 10 grand personally on the deal. Mm-hmm. We've, we've had some knockout deals where, you know, in, in a week I flipped the property and made 80 grand on one. On oh, one. wow. You yeah, said so, assigned fee. Is that what you said? That's, that's, that's how, his, that's your cut basically. Yeah. yeah so the assignment fee is, is the fee that you get for assigning your rights over to the, the new buyer. Got it. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so that's, that's how we, we finance a lot of our marketing for the wholesale side. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to actually acquiring properties, you know, the nice thing about being a wholesaler is you are a jack of all trades. You, you're basically a landlord, you're a flipper, you're a syndicator, you're a marketer, you're a business owner. Um, and once all those things start to run in tandem and run efficiently, you get the pick of the litter. I mean, now we're sending out close to 5,000 letters a week. And we get so many properties. I get 80 calls a week or more, you know, 80 to 100 calls a week. Um, and I get to pick through and I find the good ones. But if there's one that's like really cream of the crop, you know, I could keep it for myself. Mm-hmm. And that's what I used to do. Uh, I no longer do that because I'm, I'm selling all my properties to invest in, in self-storage. I know we'll get to that later, but yeah. that's what I used to do. So it's nice because you get the first look and you always get it at cheaper prices than anywhere else you can find it. So, you, you know, you sort of alluded to it. How much time would you say wholesaling, your wholesaling endeavors take you on a daily basis? Yeah, so it, it takes me a lot of time. Um, it is a very time intensive job. I have a great team around me, which helps. So, but it doesn't reduce the amount of time I spend in the business. I just, or I guess now instead of spending time in the business, I spend time on the business. So instead of me doing the calls with the sellers, I have an acquisition manager that does that for me. Mm-hmm. Instead of be, me being the one that's, you know, logging everything on the computer into our CRM, we have a lead manager that does that for us. That allows me to, to open up my time so I can go meet with investors, go raise money. You know, I spend probably 60 to 80 hours a week working on the real, the various real estate businesses. But a lot of that is like, I don't look at it like as if it was work. You know, I have a three hour meeting at the bar and I'm drinking with an investor. Like that's a good time. You know, it doesn't feel like work. <laughs> so um, you've got, uh, you've got a little bit of a team in place. Um, are there any systems that you've developed to kind of, you know, keep things uh, moving? Absolutely. So on uh, the wholesale side of things, we use a backend CRM called InvestorFuse. Shout out to Dan and Los over, over there. Their system's awesome. It helps me track everything. Uh, not only do I get key performance indicators, KPIs, as people like to call them, but I can see how the business is doing with just a one screen snapshot. How many calls did I get this week, this day? How many are being converted to appointments? How many of those appointments are being converted to contracts? How many of those contracts are being converted to showings for investors? And then how many of those showings are converting into actual deals and checks in my pocket? It helps a lot 
the problem with wholesaling is a lot of guys, they start scaling too fast and deals start falling through the cracks. So these backend CRMs are great because they, they make sure that you don't forget anything. You have to physically check a box saying, you know, I did the research on this property. And then once you do that, then it brings you to the next next page and says, okay, did the research, did you submit the offer? Here's a way that you can submit the offer through our backend CRM. Another great thing too is what people don't realize, and this is true of all marketing, um, not just in real estate, is you have to touch the potential client multiple times. They say usually anywhere between seven to 12, I've seen different articles, um, seven to 12 times before they're willing to do business with you. So what is a touch point? It can be them receiving my letter and then calling me and then talking to me or talking to Brian or any one of our team, Steven. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we put them on a, a, you know, a follow-up campaign where they get emails and text messages from our system automatically as if that we're sending it to them. So they feel like it's a personal touch, you know, Hey, this is Fernando just checking in. You know, I haven't heard from you in a week. Just wondering if you're still looking to sell your house or your multifamily property or your self storage facility, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, that's extremely important because before I switched over to, to using the CRM, I was just doing everything on Excel. I just had an Excel sheet and mm-hmm. I was losing deals left and right. And I remember one time taking an audit and calling a lot of the deals that I lost. And I, another investor swooped in and took the deal, you know, 48 hours, 72 hours after I was supposed to make an offer and I lost it. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. timing is super important and making sure that you have something that tracks everything that you're doing. And once you start scaling, getting team members tracks everything they're doing uh, to make sure nothing falls through the cracks. Do you guys do any like social media sort of work? I'm just curious. Yeah, um, we do a little bit. I've tested multiple marketing strategies. I know some people do have success with social media, but I'm a I'm an old man at heart. I love the direct <laughs> mail. It just it works so well. I mean, when you get a letter from us, it, it sets us apart from everybody else because it's a handwritten letter. You know, it's a number 10 envelope, white security envelope. It's got a handwritten blue address, handwritten return address. It's got a live forever stamp on it. You open it up and then it's a professional copy. It has like our, you know, logo and our website. And so if they want to, you know, a lot of people now, before they do anything, they Google you or Google your company. Mm-hmm. So it's important to have that presence online and we do, uh, but we don't get a lot of leads through that. And when we did make a large push through social media to get leads. We found that they were lower quality leads, a lot of time wasters, a lot of tire kickers. Cause it's very easy when you're on, you know, on the computer at night, just be like, yeah, send me an offer and click through like 16 different wholesalers websites or buyers websites. So we just found that the quality of lead is much higher through our direct mail and then through our referrals. Um, another thing that it's hard to build up, but once it starts building up, it, you really start to see the power is your professional network, your, your referrals network. So in the beginning, nobody knows who you are. And so no one, you have to go out and fight and claw for every deal. You know, now I have deals emailed to me constantly, the attorneys, you know, bankruptcy stuff, probate people, nursing homes, other buyers. I have buyers that will buy property from me and they remember buying a good deal from me. And then maybe they either got, caught in a bad place with one of the properties, they want me to get rid of it for them, or more likely, you know, they go out and they make offers on three properties thinking one gets accepted and all three offers get accepted. They only have the funds to do one of them. They call me and then I wholesale the other two. And everything we do, I like, the way I look at businesses, everything should be even. So 
if somebody brings me a property, you know, most wholesalers and other buyers, they say, oh, we'll pay you a referral fee of, you know, like a hundred bucks or a thousand bucks. What we do is we'll give you half our profits. Whatever we make on that deal, we'll give you half. Um, and that's why a lot of people send me their deals first. We also have one of the largest networks in Chicago. So just the most exposure right now. I think we have a little over 6,300 buyers on our list just for the Chicago market. And then uh, you mentioned you've hired, you have an acquisitions manager. Are there any other employees you hired, any virtual assistants that you use, things yeah. like that? Yeah. So here's kind of like the growth of the company and, and how you should start hiring people to be most efficient. So first off, it's just going to be you by yourself usually, right? Then you start getting enough volume where you can't handle all the leads that are coming in yourself. So you're going to need someone to either answer the phone for you and then do the back-end system. So that can be done by a VA. We call that person a lead manager. So they're the ones that make sure that the, the relationship is nurtured, following up, getting, you know, gathering information. You know, yeah. the best use of my time now is not to plug information into a computer. Yeah. I should be out there raising money. So the lead manager is the one that is going to handle all your backend CRM processes for you and uh, schedule appointments for you and tell you what appointments to go on to. So that's the, fir the first person you should hire is a lead manager once you get to that volume where you can't handle all the phone calls yourself. Yeah. Uh, then it's going to get to the point where your lead manager is scheduling so many appointments for you, you're not going to be able to get to all the showings at the same time because some of them are scheduled for the exact same time. So this is the next person you hire is your acquisitions manager. So your acquisitions manager is the person that will physically go out to the property, meet with the seller, build the rapport. This person needs to be a salesperson. So where the lead manager can be a virtual assistant, you know, um, in the Philippines or in, you know, wh wherever they are, where it's cheaper labor, you can get them anywhere between four to 10 bucks an hour. The acquisition manager has to be an in-person super sales shark. Okay. They need to be able to be super personable. Uh, I found that females are actually better at building rapport than males just because right off the bat, it's less threatening, especially when you're meeting with, you know, we, we do a lot of probate deals. So probate deals are when someone passes away and they have an estate to settle with creditors. And usually it's one person and it can be someone that's mm -hmm. elderly and it can even be, you know, say an elderly woman. So they don't want just some random guy just showing up if they haven't if they don't trust you. That being said, our lead manager is a guy, but <laughs> he's, a, he's a great guy. He, he's super nice and he's, he's a shark. So that, that acquisition manager, they have to be very savvy. They have to be quick. They have to be good at negotiation. Uh, one book I make every employee read of ours is uh, Never Split the Difference. It's one of the best books I've ever read. They need to be able to just build a connection as fast as possible. And then the second part of the acquisition manager is they have to be good with numbers because on the, on the fly, they're going to have to walk through the property, take notes, put together a construction bid. Hopefully before they go to the property, they already know what the end value of this property is. So then once they figure out what the construction value is, the rehab cost, they can just back that number down and make an offer on the spot. The ability to get contracts signed, the most motivated that seller is going to be is when you're there in front of them and they're going to sign yeah. the contract while you're there. If you have to leave to run numbers and then email them back, we've lost deals because of that. You know, we came back, like I said, we were supposed to make an offer. 72 hours later, we go to make the offer and said, oh, I already signed a contract with an investor that came two hours after you did to my mm -hmm. property. And it's like, oh, I had a, and my offer was higher. She would have made more money with my offer than the other investors she went to, but I didn't pull the, you know, we didn't pull the trigger on time. Um, so that's gonna be your acquisition manager. 
that team right there, so you, an acquisition manager, and a lead manager, right off the bat, that trifecta can last you a long time. Once that you start kind of bottlenecking yourself again, your system starts breaking, your time starts breaking, that's when it's time to, what I think is time to either hire a partner with an integrator. So I have a partner, his name's Stephen Ware, he's the best thing that ever happened in my business. Mm-hmm. We combined all our, our companies. So there's a book called E-Myth. There you go. So yeah. E-Myth talks about how there's two types of people. You know, there's the visionaries and then there's the integrators. And I know Traction touches on this as well. So if, if anybody out there is looking for a way to run their company, an actual system to run their company, Traction is wonderful. So I'm a, I'm a visionary. I got millions of ideas constantly floating around, but so I, I like to start a lot of things, but I don't finish a lot of them, right? So you need somebody that can finish the things that you start. So that's where the integrator comes in, or some people call it a COO, Chief Operating Officer. Yeah. That's probably the next person you want to hire. And then you just start making those teams and then just increasing levels. So then from there, then you have a acquisitions department where there's a, a department head and the department head looks over multiple acquisition managers. You have a, you know, a lead intake department that looks over multiple lead intake people. Mm-hmm. Then towards the end, you, you're going to, you can't do all the marketing yourself. I'm a little anal retentive about this. So I'd like to do my own marketing, but eventually I'm not going to be able to do this. So we have to hire a dedicated marketing person that does all our social media. That's going to do all the mailers, do all the, you know, scrubbing for lists and the finding of, of different opportunities where we can expand into. And I think right there that with that, those four or five people I described, your business is probably already grossing 10 million a year or more. So That's the awesome. nice thing about real estate is you can, you can keep it super lean, you know? Yeah. For wholesaling business alone, we gross anywhere between half a million and a million a year. And we did that with three people. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I'm just going to say that uh, if anyone needs a mentor, they should probably contact you because <laughs> I just learned a lot. <laughs> so I, uh, it's funny. Stephen hates when I do this, but I do this on every podcast I get into. <laughs> if anybody wants to call me, my number is 630-408-8090. You can, I'm, a, I'm very generous with my time. I found that the more people I help, it usually comes back tenfold. Perfect example yeah. is um, recently I took on uh, another wholesale mentee. And he started rocking it after working with me for six months. And now he's bringing me deals because he doesn't have as many cash buyers as I have. So I, the reason I offer this up is because truly it's a selfish thing to do. Because I know if I help more people become real estate investors, eventually there's going to be a deal they can't take down. And who are they going to call first? They're going to call Fernando first. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We were just talking about this with a guest we were interviewing yesterday, sort of the give and get. Yeah. He really took like a leap of faith and, and just started giving money to charities and things and eventually sort of had that karmic give back where he got an opportunity and was able to then like feed his family in a, yeah. you know, more sufficient way. Yeah. Paul, Paul yeah. Moore. He's awesome. He was awesome. I, so. I know Paul very well. Yeah. I was actually spoke to him yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so did we. Yeah. 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 He is lovely. Yes. He's a great guy. Um, awesome. All right. So obviously what you're doing right now, is pretty location dependent with the wholesaling. If you get a team in place, would this be fairly location independent if you weren't you know, doing so yeah. much? So we, as we've been transitioning to the new sides of the real estate business, we've been closing down other markets, but at the height, we were, we had Chicago running, we had Indianapolis running, we had Des Moines running, Fort Lauderdale and Dallas Fort Worth all with great teams, they were chugging out deals. Oh, cool. But now that we're we're moving more, we're 
it's not away from wholesaling, but wholesaling is, is one of the, the things I tell a lot of new investors is they, they get shiny object syndrome. They want to do multifamily and they want to do fix and flip and they want to do wholesaling. And what I tell people is that is possible, but don't do it all at the same time. Like master one, then you can add to your repertoire. So mm-hmm. it took me about five years to truly master the wholesaling business before we decided to move into other businesses. So now we, we close down a lot of those markets or we let you know, the acquisition manager say, hey, this is your company now. You know, just pay us out a small fee and this is all yours. Uh, so that's what we did with most of our markets and then just kept Chicago for ourselves because I love nice. this um, even though it is super cold right now and there's <laughs> snow outside. Um, yeah, so then, and then now we're moving into, we do Airbnb arbitrage and uh, self-storage development and acquisitions. Gotcha. Yeah. And obviously the goal is to have that location independent since you said you wanted to travel. Yeah, it's, it's I'm not, I wouldn't say that it's easy, but if you have the systems in place and you find people you can trust, it is, it's not hard to operate in, in markets that you're not in. Okay. Um, key is that you really have to screen, 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 and make sure you trust the person. Even if the person's an all-star and resume is insane, but you just sit down with them over a beer and you just don't feel right, don't hire that person, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, and this is why I love real estate because it, it is truly one of those things where you can work from, I, I was telling you guys right before we started recording, I was in Thailand for the last month and Checks were still coming in while I was in Thailand, right? Because I had a team. I didn't have to physically be here. Yeah. That's awesome. So do you think you could push that beyond four weeks right now, today? Could you go longer than that or, or yeah, would things absolutely. start to break down? How yeah, long, do you, think you, how long do, you think, do you think you'd push that? I think right now I can, I can leave the business with very little you know, babysitting. I could probably get away with probably four to six months. And I was, I was close because as I was traveling, I'd come across people that are like, I'm traveling for two years. I was like, oh, maybe I should join you. And I look over at Steven. He's like, don't you do it. Don't. <laughs> I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But especially the wholesale business, we have all the, all the systems in place. The only reason I can't really do that right now with the other businesses is because we're starting them up. So I still need to get all the systems in place for the Airbnb. Yeah. Yeah. For the self-storage. Yeah. We, uh, one of the first people who ever introduced me to self-storage is a a man by the name of Eric Hemingway. And we've interviewed him uh, on a previous episode. And he, uh, he took his, he and his family, six kids on a sailboat, a catamaran in the Mediterranean for three years. One of the children was born during that trip. One of the children was born during that trip. Uh, Although I think they stopped Where were they? They stopped in like Israel or something. Uh, they, had the, they, they were. They had the baby in Israel. Yeah. And then they. And then but they, they did. Oh. Yeah. I sort of have this like half fantasy about oh. uh, getting on a sailboat for for a couple of years. It's not going to happen. He like follows people on YouTube, and I yeah, like. There's a there's a fen- there's a phenomenal YouTube channel called Sailing La Vagabond, and it will make you. It will make you want to go and sail. They're also yeah. like twenty something. They don't have any children. They do now. We'll okay. see how things go. Yeah. It's funny because in one of the <laughs> it was one of the Robert Kiyosaki books, he used an example of a guy that traveled around the world in a sailboat for like a year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Like two children, homeschooling yeah. and yeah. Yeah. You never know. You never know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I <laughs> I 
I would like to do the travel. I just, I don't, I don't know. I could probably, it depends on where we're sailing. I mean, Eric and his family, they like, there was one where they like went across an ocean for like. They went to, they sailed across the Atlantic. And and I just, yeah. it, it sounds like too much water. for me, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> if you want to like sail around the Mediterranean, some other places, <laughs> I can maybe get on board there. <laughs> Yeah, you should talk to my partner, Steven. He's a, he's a big sailing enthusiast as well. No, he doesn't need to learn more about it. <laughs> later, later. Yeah, yeah. You can also look at it as, a, you know, a networking. So we're always looking at ways that yeah. we can increase our, you know, they say your net, your net worth is your network or your network mm-hmm. is very true. And people that have sailboats have a lot of money. Because sailboats are not cheap. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Fine, yeah. whatever, baby. <laughs> Grow your beard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Learn to sail. Yep. So, in regards to wholesaling, what do you think are some of the more critical skills uh, a new investor needs to develop to be successful? Yeah. Number one is you need to know how to do construction costs. That is by far the number one. I remember the very first deal I tried to wholesale and I failed. I found this, this big Victorian style house. I was completely in disrepair. I didn't know what I was doing. And I got under contract for something like $20,000. And when the investor started walking through in the email, I told them that the rehab cost was going to be like $56,000. And when it, people started walking, people would walk in and within four seconds, they would just walk out and just leave. And I was like, something's up here. And so finally I started following up with them. I was like, what's going on? They're like, that was a $200,000 rehab project for Nando, not 56000 I was like, oh, but I, I followed this sheet that told me, and it's like, no, you need to actually know how to do construction costs breakdown. So I was lucky because I, the reason why I was doing so bad is I was, using like these systems, they had like these pre-printed construction cost sheet. It was a one page sheet. So it was like very bare bones. Um, instead of just doing what I knew, part of my uh, education, my formal education, when I got my engineering degree is I did uh, a lot of construction classes, HVAC, electrical, foundation, drywall, yeah. roofing, stuff like that. And so we, I went back and I created an entire repair cost estimate sheet. It's like six pages long. It has literally anything that you can think of is on there. But for those that don't have that type of background, what I recommend is you become real friendly with a contractor and kind of the quid pro quo would be, Hey, contract, come out, do these bids for me. Show me how you do these bids so I can learn. And as I wholesale them to these investors, I can put into my marketing email to the buyers saying, Hey, here's the construction bid the contractor that did this bid is willing to do the work. So they don't even have to find a contractor to do the work for them. Now, a lot of the the pros, they already have their own contractors, but even the guys that are doing 50 deals a year, flips a year, you know, their contractors come and go. Contractors are, it's a hard thing. It's the hardest part of of the real estate business, whether you're a wholesaler or a rehab or or a landlord. Um, So I would say number one is knowing how to do construction breakdown costs. Number two is going to be marketing because you, you need the, the deals or else the construction knowledge doesn't matter. And then number three is negotiation. Once you have the deal, how do you get it under contract, right? At a price that makes sense where you can make money. Yeah. Because every, every, every property has a home run number. Uh, right. It doesn't matter what, what it is. You know, every property's got some number where it makes sense. And the problem that so many people run into is they buy properties at numbers that it doesn't make sense. You're never going to make money. Yeah. So that's, 
that's one of the problems that we're facing right now. To go back for those that were in the industry during the last recession, 2006 to 2008, you started to know things were getting wrong or getting bad before they were getting bad because everyone and their mother was a realtor. Everybody was becoming a realtor, right? So that's a bad sign. Well, I'm starting to see the same thing again, but now with wholesalers. So yeah. I consistently am losing out on deals because there's wholesalers that are locking them up at prices that don't make sense. You know, they came off of some whatever course and they're, they're locking up prices that don't make sense. I lose the contract and then guess what? 30, 45 days later, that seller calls my acquisition manager and says, hey, they weren't able to close on this deal. Can you do this deal at the same price? I said, the reason they weren't able to close is because the price is too high, right? Yeah. So if you want us to yeah. do this deal, it has to be at, you know, X. We have to yeah. drop the price down a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And so at least that seller had the option to do that. One of the biggest things that I'm always worried about is the main reason I got into this is yes, I want time freedom and to get time freedom, I need to make money. But also there comes, you know, you're helping people out of tricky situations. So the biggest ones that are really time sensitive is if you get somebody that has a pre-foreclosure, right? Mm -hmm. And if you can't close in time, their property gets auctioned off and they lose all their equity. So that's one of the areas where it's not that I'm mad that there's this influx of wholesalers. I just wish they would spend more time at, you know, really being realistic with the sellers. And this is one of the reasons why anytime in my market in Chicago, I come across a wholesaler, I always offer them. It's like, Hey man, if you need, or woman, if you need help, my information is almost free. It'll cost you the cost of a beer or six and mm -hmm. take me to a bar and I'll teach you everything I know. I've done that multiple times. And now I have four or five wholesalers that I helped, you know, that I mentored and now they're doing deals with me and they're doing deals without me, which is even better. That means that their business are starting to grow and I don't need to, you know, hold their hand through things. Real estate is one of those things where it's, it's all about mindset. You have, you can either be abundance, have an abundance mindset or a scarcity mindset. The scarcity mindset would look at that and say, Hey, I'm, training my competition so everyone's competition right where but i like to say that and i try to practice an abundance mentality where i say hey these are my potential partners not competition right and that's what has i have learned over the last five years is just give 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 and it comes back tenfold in the last maybe two or three months i've probably already made 50 grand off of deals that were brought to me by other wholesalers i taught that's awesome yeah so is there anything that you haven't already mentioned? Because you have given so much knowledge, which is great. It's really exciting because it'll be helpful for someone out there. But if you yeah. could hit like a magic reset button, is there, are there any systems or anything that you can think of that you would kind of like put into place earlier, or do over? Yeah. So right off the bat. Okay. So a few things. Um, Lifestyle wise. I wish I would have started waking up a lot earlier than I did. You know, now I wake up between 4.30 and 5 o'clock. And that's not even the earliest out of some of the people that I work with. I know people that get up at 3 a.m. And you're able to get so much work done in those first four or five hours before 8 a.m. hits. And then your phone starts ringing and emails start coming in and distracting you. So right off the bat, I would have reset my entire schedule. Um, you know, rolling out of college, I only had a real person job for 13 months. I got out of college. I worked for a fortune 50 company for 13 months and I quit. And in that time in college, I was waking up at like 10 AM <laughs> maybe, you know, and you waste a lot of time that way. 
So number one would be wake up early and then get a routine in place. If you guys listening out there have ever heard of The Miracle Morning, it's a great book. I suggest everybody do it. So I start off my days by, I, I wake up usually anywhere between four and five o'clock. I go get coffee or tea immediately. I go make coffee or tea immediately to kind of get me refreshed. And then I do a little bit of meditation or whatever you want to call it, self-reflection. Helps me kind of calm my mind and prioritize what I want to do for the day. Then I read or listen to books because if you don't make time for it, you're never going to do it. So I forgot who told me this, but if you read 10 pages a day, that's not hard, 10 pages in a year, you've read 3,650 pages. And if your average book, let's say is 300 pages, that's 10 books that you've read in one year, just by spending 20, 30 minutes for me, because I'm a slow reader, but for others out there that can, you know, speed read, you could crush a lot more. And then making sure that in the morning, I also go to the gym. There's something, it doesn't even have to be, I, even though I do heavy exercises, powerlifting, it doesn't have to be that. You know, if you just go get the blood flowing, bring extra oxygen to the brain, you make better decisions, you're in a better mood, you've had a, a flush of endorphins go through your body. When you're in a better mood, you're more collaborative, you're able to do more deals, you're able to negotiate better, you're able to connect with people. So I work out and then, and then eat, eat well. You know, when I first started this business, when I had my real person job, <laughs> I, my job was to drive, I drove eight hours a day to oh. different accounts. So I would just constantly be eating on the road, which is the worst kind of food you can eat, right? Fast food and fried, you know, I was in Iowa. So the big thing that I ate all the time was fried pork tenderloin, like deep fried breaded pork tenderloin that like Ooh. does a number on your, what people don't realize is, you know, something crazy like 90 or 95% of your endorphins come from your gut. Yeah. Not from your brain. Don't have to tell her twice. Yeah, <laughs> you eat well, it puts you in a better mood. You're, you're able to be more efficient and effective. So morning routine, number one. Number two, I should have brought people onto the, the company much sooner. Mm. And it, what a lot of new business owners think is like, oh, well, if I bring someone in, that's less profit from me. I get a smaller piece of the pie. But what we don't realizes that that pie is now three times as large. So even though you get a smaller slice, you're still getting more pie, right? So it, I wish I wish I would have brought on my partner when I started the business. And then I wish I would have hired my acquisition manager within six months to a year of starting instead of, mm-hmm. I think I hired Brian like two or two or three years in um, mm-hmm. after I already was losing deals, right? So bringing people on, so that's number two. And then number three, making sure you have a system that keeps you accountable. So that's not only something for the digital stuff or the, you know, the actual lead tracking, the CRM, but also having people to hold you accountable, mm-hmm. um, be it a partner or be it a, you know, a Facebook community or a men's group or whatever, women's group or whatever it is, somewhere where you can project a goal. And then the next time that person sees you, they say, Hey, remember that goal? What did you do? And if you didn't do it, you feel really shitty, you know? <laughs> yes. So it's, it's great to have somebody to hold you accountable. I know there's a lot of people that they say, Hey, never have partners. I think those are people are coming from a scarcity mentality type of yeah, place. Yeah. 
If you go down the rabbit hole of like habits and go with like Gretchen Rubin's model of the four tendencies, a lot of people are what she calls obligers who really struggle with inner expectations. So they can do lots of things for other people, but the minutes for themselves and when you're working for yourself, anything you're doing for your job is for yourself. They really require outer, like an external accountability source. And that's a lot of times as a nutritionist, that's kind of where I'm working from. I'm working with a lot of obligers who just they know what they need to eat a lot of times, but they just don't have the accountability there. It's, um, so it's, it's kind of the same spot. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people also that get into business also aren't obligers at the same time and then have to find the right kind of accountability that doesn't trigger some of their other issues. I'm speaking to the rebels of the it's world nice. out there. <laughs> it's funny because um, I'm very intrinsically motivated. I'm a very driven person. I've always been that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. However, I, I give myself excuses sometimes. And I, what I found, one of my good friends, and actually now he's a business partner in the Airbnb property business, um, he's the one that got me into shape. So mm-hmm. like, let's go start working out. And what we found out is I respond really well to negative reinforcement <sighs> as opposed to positive reinforcement. So he'd show up at my house at five o'clock. He's like, get out of bed. <laughs> you're, you know, you're, you're soft. Like you gotta, gotta go to harden you up here, you know? But you know, it's, it's all about finding out what works for you. Yep. So yeah. That's, so that's what I say is uh, number one, morning routine, waking up early. Number two, bringing people on and holding you accountable. Number three, making sure that nothing's falling through the cracks by having some type of, you know, lead management system. And then I'd say uh, number four, which I should have done, started doing so much faster than I did is start networking. And, mm. and I mean, real, real networking, the pay to play stuff. Yeah. So what I found is, you know, when you go to these free real estate groups, yes, those are great. But guess what? Everybody else in the room has no money and they're looking at you for the same thing. Then I started joining these like country clubs and where you got to pay to get in these networking groups, these mastermind groups that you have to pay to get in. Guess what? That's a barrier, a $10,000 entry fee to join a mastermind. That is a barrier to people that you shouldn't be networking with because you know, they they always say network up, right? Don't network down, network up. So if you want to network up, you got to go where the money is. And unfortunately, places that are free to get in. There's not a lot of money in there, right? (laughs) Yacht Club, you know, we're part of the Chicago Yacht Club as well. There's fees involved, right? Uh, University Club's another one. So uh, the networking side of things and then just be diligent about it. You know, I, there's a book, I'm trying to remember what it's called. I think it's like Never Eat Alone. Mm. Wonderful book. And I, I try to do that as much as possible without getting fat. I, I try to eat with somebody, an investor, a private money lender, a wholesaler, opponents, lawyers, anyone that can help build my business in some type of way. And then not to mention you learn so much from these people. What I find a lot of newbies doing is they try to reinvent the wheel when it's like it, people have been doing this since people have been doing this since people have been doing this. You know, wholesaling, this is not a new thing. You go back to depending on your age, you know, back to the late night infomercial days with Carlton Sheets talking about his no money down, no credit strategy. That That's wholesaling, right? Mm-hmm. Was it called that back then? But that's what it was. So there's, there's no need to try to build the business from scratch when you can just go talk to other people that have already done what you've done. And kind of going back to what I said before, mirroring the, you want to learn from people that are ahead of you, but not too far ahead of you, right? Mm-hmm. 
I haven't wholesaled my first carrot. I call it a close carrot. A close carrot. Cool. I like that. I'm going to have to steal that, Neil. Close carrot. Yeah. Because like, if you haven't wholesaled even one deal, talking to a guy that's wholesaling 500 deals a year, you're not going to get anything out of that. You're just going to be confused and it's going to maybe even, you know, dismotivate you. Right. So if you're, if you're looking to wholesale your first deal, go find someone that's wholesaling, you know, 10 to 30. If you're doing 10 to 30, Go find someone that's doing a hundred to three hundred. If you're doing a hundred, three hundred, go find someone's doing a thousand to three thousand. Right? Yeah. Uh, I always say go try to learn from somebody that's five years ahead of you, not ten, not fifteen, not twenty years in experience, but five, just five years ahead of you. You can learn so much, and you can implement. Yeah. Awesome. Gotcha. So you know we've talked an awful lot about your wholesaling, but obviously you're you're moving on. To, we know you're moving on to bigger and better things. Uh, and you mentioned two of them, self-storage and Airbnb with rental arbitrage. Can you briefly sort of walk us through what you're doing there and maybe sort of why you have gravitated towards that over wholesaling? And just as a like, I, I think that we'll probably have you back on for like Airbnb yeah. arbitrage and self-storage sure. once you kind of get farther in or once we get farther into our podcast, because I think that I, I think there's probably so much that we can learn from you. And be I can, an, I can an, go for an interesting. Yeah, I think it would be, we don't we don't have time to really go into right. this. So we'll get in, we'll do another couple of podcasts with you later on, hopefully, and, and we can go deeper. So really just scrape the surface. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I do want to correct you on one thing, Neil. So I'm not I'm not doing these things over wholesaling. I'm adding to wholesale. Gotcha. Okay. The things that I'm doing over is I am no longer being a landlord. So I have stopped buying single family and multifamily rentals. And I'm actually selling all of my single family multifamily rentals. And how I'm replacing that passive income is with self-storage and Airbnb. So I'll start with the self-storage because I've been doing that one a little bit longer, about three years. Um, and then I'll go to the Airbnb, which I just started about six months ago. Mm -hmm. So on the self-storage side, the reason it was crazy. I was down in Indiana for the like Indianapolis Real Estate Expo. I'm walking through the different breakout rooms because mine ended early. And I peek my head into a room that had Scott Myers in it. So... Scott Myers, as soon as I put my head in, he said the word triple digit cash on cash return. And I was like, all right, let's, I'm going to go to the front of the room and sit down and I'm going to, I'm going to see what this is all about. And he just started making so many great points and all of the pain points that I had from being a, a residential and multifamily landlord, tenants, toilets, trash, self-storage has none of this. Self-storage is a metal box built on concrete slab. There's no running water to the boxes. There's no electricity for the most part, unless you have contractor units, but let's get into the weeds a little bit. The management is a lot easier than managing people. The eviction laws are a lot easier. So instead of eviction, instead of it being eviction law or tenant law, it's lien law, property law. So, you know, Chicago is one of the worst cities uh, in the U.S. for evictions. We had somebody... We started the eviction on one of our units because that person hadn't paid for three or four months. And it took something like 13 months to legally get her out. Legally. The courts sided with her even though she was stealing from us, right? She was living on our property without paying rent. That's a nightmare. On the flip side, you have self-storage, which is 
they don't pay their rent, guess what? The gate is locked. You can't even get in. Your keypad entry code doesn't work. You can't even get into the gate. Now say you try to get, you climb over the gate. You get to your unit. The unit is double locked. It's got a manager's lock on top of it. So now you can't even get to your stuff. You want your stuff, you got to pay me. So after them being late for three days and us trying to work with them, if they, if they don't work with us, then we start the process. We put a notification in the local newspaper do that twice. And then we auction off their stuff. And this all happens in less than 28 days, right? We hold an auction. I don't even need to find the buyers. I just, I just call an auction company. They bring their self-storage auction buyers. I'm one day I'm hoping to get on that, that show. Mm-hmm. Um, what's it called? Uh, storage Wars. Um, but hopefully not though, because that means I have to evict somebody. So 28 days as opposed to 38 or as opposed to 13 months, right? So I don't lose any revenue. And then when the eviction happens, the so in our multifamily property that I was talking about the 13 month eviction they destroyed the unit they destroyed all the drywall they left the water running any damage they can do because they're spiteful they did it and that cost me a ton of money to repair right in a in a storage unit not only do they not even have access to it after they they're late on rent payments but what are you going to do it's a metal box on concrete like what are you going to do to it you know <laughs> so Number one, right? Number two is leverage. Multifamily and single family are risky in the eyes of banks. So right off the bat, if you're trying to get a conventional loan, you're looking at 25% down, right? No problem. Self-storage across all real estate asset classes is, is, has performed the best in both up and down economies. So during the recession, self-storage as a whole dropped only 3%. Residential properties dropped 22% across the U.S. on average, right? So the recession tolerant. Banks love that. So they're going to give you better terms and they're going to be a lot more flexible on rate and down payment. Something that kind of feeds into this as well is that self-storage is considered a business, a small business. So you qualify for SBA financing. SBA financing allows you to go as low as 15% down. And then you can get, if you can negotiate this, get the seller to take back a second position, you could get into a property with no money out of your pocket or very little, maybe 5% down, right? So now instead of taking down a million dollar multifamily property where you're going to need $250,000 in cash alone, not to mention interest reserves and all this other stuff, you could take down a million dollar self-storage facility with five grand, 50 grand, right? It's a lot easier. The nice thing about self-storage financials is that, like I said, it's very recession tolerant. So when when a recession strikes, because here in the United States and in some parts of Europe, we're very materialistic, we would rather downsize, right? But instead of selling our possessions, we store them. You know, you can't throw away your four-year-old's art drawings, right? You're going to keep those forever, right? Where are you going to put them eventually? In a storage unit, right? And then same thing in an up economy. When it's an up economy and everyone's making money, what do, you, what do we like to do in the United States? We just like to buy shit. So what are you going to do with all that stuff? We're going to put it in storage facilities. And the craziest part is we were running analytics. We were working with Marcus and Millichap, and they had a great presentation for us. We found out that, you know, in the, in the beginning, we thought most of the self-storage tenants are the ones that live in like a high-rise condo with like no room. It's not the case. We found like 69% of our tenants have live in a single family home. And like a portion of those had garages, they had basements, they had attics, they had plenty of spaces to store stuff. But what happens is, you know, 
you have a, a certain amount of space, you end up filling it with stuff, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't matter how big your residence is. So that's another reason I really like self-storage. And then the passive income. You know, a lot of these facilities, people are either mailing checks or they, now we, we just purchased one and we did a, we're doing a value add on it. It's actually a million dollar facility that we bought. They had no systems in place. We added the ability to pay with credit card, debit card. With ACH, you can pay by going to like 7-Elevens and depositing money with their system that they have and it goes straight into your account. As far as the passive income goes, like it, it made so much more sense to me than the single family and multifamily stuff. Um, that being said, if you still want single family and multifamily in Chicago, I will find it for you. I will wholesale you the properties. <laughs> I personally will not buy them anymore, right? And then same thing with the Airbnb. The reason we started looking at Airbnb arbitrage is because of the sheer net effect that we got on our income. Um, you know, like I said, as a wholesale, I'm able to cherry pick the best of the best deals. Yeah. So I'm going to use some of my best deals, rental properties, as an example. Some of my best rental properties, I'm netting after debt service, I'm netting $400 to $500 a month per after, door. After right? debt service, Everything. management, cash after debt service, CapEx, all that. This is, this is money into my pocket, right? So that's really good. Most people say aim for 200 to 300 bucks a month net on single family homes in the Chicago market, and you're doing real well. Just to compare that to Airbnb, on Airbnb, we're netting between 1200 and 1800 net per month per door. So this is one of those things where I was like, it just made so much sense. And I think this is one of those industries that is really revolutionizing real estate. You know, it's very low barrier entry, especially if you do the model I do, which is the arbitrage model. And the income that it produces is astounding. Yeah. So like I said, I, I saw the numbers that the Airbnb was producing, right? 1200 to 1800 bucks net per month. And it just made a third the cost of those rental properties. I bought those rental properties for roughly 45,000 each. It cost me about $8,000 to get a arbitrage unit up. So that's first month's rent, security deposit and furnishing and supplies, right? So it, it cost me a third of the capital up front, but I'm tripling my income. Yeah. That, uh, that effect is amazing. What is Airbnb arbitrage? Yeah. So what I do is I, instead of buying a property in Airbnb and out, I rent it from a landlord, allow that landlord to take all the risks of, you know, rising taxes and insurance. And I have a fixed, I have a fixed rent expense, right? Mm -hmm. And then I go and I relist that property on Airbnb and rent it out by the night or by the weekend or whatever they decide to to book it for. So there's a couple of reasons I did this. One, like I said, I live in Chicago. The taxes here are atrocious um, and they go up almost every year. Same thing with insurance. You know, it's constantly going up. All of a sudden I started hearing whispers and murmurs and now they're trying to get it into the the Illinois or into the Chicago law that they want to do rent restrictions. They want to fix rent so that it will not allow landlords to increase their rent even though their expenses are increasing. That's crazy, right? So instead of me just saying, oh, I hope that doesn't happen, I said, I figured I'd go on the other side. So now as an Airbnb arbitrage investor, rent restrictions are good for me because that means my base expense will never go up. But guess what's not going to be restricted? The Airbnb prices are going to continue to go up as, as time goes on. Mm-hmm. So our, our sell to the landlord, because you know landlords are traditionally old school, 
and no one likes change. Everyone's resistant to it. So they hear this Airbnb and like, oh, what if, you know, what if somebody destroys my property or this and that, whatever. So here's my sales pitch for them to say, number one, I am more financially capable of covering the rent than your typical, your typical tenant. Okay. So we typically go for two bedroom, one bath and two bedroom, two bath units. And they're usually in apartments in the city of Chicago. That costs us anywhere between 1500 and we negotiated down to about 2000 bucks a month in rent. Okay. So most of the people that are applying for this, let's call it $2,000 a month rent. Their income is maybe 5,000 a month. I can show them my income from all my companies as well as the income coming from the other Airbnbs I have and say, hey, usually you'd want somebody to have, you know, $5,000, you know, gross a month paycheck. Like here's 25,000. Does that make you feel more secure that I can pay the rent? Yes, it does. Right. Number two, your average tenant, one year tenant, they are going to do a deep clean on the property maybe once before they move out. Right. Mm-hmm. I am getting the, your property professionally clean three to five times a week. Okay. Number three, the use and abuse of your, your appliances is much lower. Most people coming to our Airbnbs are coming from out of town or even out of state and country. They're coming to Chicago. Chicago is known across the world for being a great place to eat, right? Everything, all the restaurants we have here are insane. So no one's going to use the oven at the Airbnb. They're going to go out and eat in Chicago, right? Um, so now, now we're talking physical dollars in your pocket because now you don't have to replace your appliances as often. So now you're, now you're actually netting more money by renting to me. On top of that, you have maintenance fees and stuff, right? So, you know, servicing the filters of uh, furnaces or, you know, painting, whatever it has to be. I'm, I offer to give them anything under $300, I'll take care of it. And to make them feel even more comfortable, say, here is my list of contractors I use. Here are their licenses. They're all bonded and they're insured. So, you know, so now again, putting more money in your pocket. So instead of spending $300, if a furnace goes out or what, what have you, I'm covering it. Okay. And then the last part I tell them is, Hey, if this works out really well and I'm, I'm able to be profitable, I will sign a long-term lease. I'll sign a three-year lease. No problem. And now as many of the landlords out there know, every time someone moves out and you have to do a turn on an apartment, it costs two to $3,000 painting, cleaning, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the tenant left, having to get it out, throw it away. And if, if you own more than one property, usually you have to hire somebody to haul away that stuff because you don't have the time to do it yourself. So now I'm saving you an extra two to $3,000 a year. And I'll, if, if I make money at the location, I'll, I'll sign a three or a five year lease, especially if I can lock in my rent price. Absolutely. No problem. Or even if they want to put in rent increases, smaller rent increases into the lease. So that usually will, will convince them, you know, that they should rent to me as opposed to a regular long-term tenant. Okay. Yeah, it's a good um, sell. <laughs> yeah. So the biggest thing I look for on the Airbnbs, I always try to stay around local touristy stuff. I have seen other people try to just, they find cheaper rent in other areas, but then they don't get as much volume. So we're all in downtown Chicago. We have stuff right within walking distance of Wrigley Field for the Cubs, right? And then everything else is down by the museum campuses in the South Loop. So if somebody is here to go look at the museums or to experience maybe even the South Side, go to, uh, you know, Comiskey to see the Mm -hmm. Sox play very close to our locations. I was telling Neil during the break here that I learned a lot of lessons. So we started, I believe we got our first unit, August 15th. That unit is above a bar. 
The reason oh. that the landlord could not rent it to a long-term tenant other than people that work in the industry, people that work in bars, because you yeah. can hear the bar until 3 a.m. You can hear the music and everything, right? Yeah. We were able to get a huge rent discount for a unit in that location, a two-bedroom usually goes for about 2000 to 2200 um, we got it for fifteen seventy five a month because it was above a bar, right? Yes. And we learned some harsh realities. It is above a bar. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, so in the in the beginning, we were getting some not great reviews, uh, even though in the listing we said it's above the bar. But now what we do is we just are extremely explicit in all caps in our listing. It says this is above a bar. You can hear the bar until it closes at two three a.m. So now we just have a different type of tenant. Now we have tenants that are coming in to basically party and they love that there's a bar, right? They can just walk downstairs in their pajamas and be at a bar, right? <laughs> that's so awesome. That's, uh, that's the Airbnb side. And that's the reason I love it. It's just a reduction of risk, you know, mitigating a lot of downside risk by, you know, locking in my expenses. And then the sheer ability the cash on cash return is over a hundred percent, right? Cause it, yeah. if I'm, let's say I, let's use the, the low end number. I'm making 1200 net per month and it only cost me $8,000 to start the entire Airbnb. I'm already getting all my money back within eight months. So if, if you extrapolate it out to a year, that's you're looking at what? 140% cash on cash, yeah. return, something crazy. When yeah. most rental properties, like if you get a, you know, if you leverage it, you know, with a loan that's really aggressive, you can maybe get like a 30, you know, a t- 15 to 30% cash on cash return. Like, and that's like, if you're doing really good, most people are like hitting 10 to 12% and I'm yeah. triple digit returns, right? That's yeah. awesome. Well, listen, we, we could do an entire show uh, easily and we will do an entire <laughs> show just on Airbnb arbitrage and just on self-storage. So we will have you back and we'll talk more about it. Thank you so much for for spending time with us today. Uh, You've already given us your phone number, but if any of our guests (laughs) want to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way they can find you? Yeah, if you just Google my name, I'm like all over Google. Thanks to Steven. He's a SEO genius. Um, You can go to our website, titanwealthgroup.com. That's T-I-T-A-N-W-E-A-L-T-H-G-R-O-U-P. Dot com. You can check us out there. Hit us on all the social media platforms. Um, find Titan Wealth Group or find myself, you know, Fernando Angelucci. You can give me a call. You can shoot me a text message. That truly is my cell phone number. Steven hates when I do this, but I don't do it. Just I'm doing it now just to make him mad. But <laughs> anybody call me. Seriously, I, I'm very abundant with my time. So if you have a question after this podcast, just give me a call. Shoot me a text message. If I'm not able to answer, you'll get a text message back saying, hey, I'm on a call or I'm on a meeting. I'll call you right back. Okay. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Great talking to you. All right. So that was Fernando Angelucci. Appreciate his time. So uh, how much knowledge did it take him to get started in wholesaling? Uh, I think he said like a few months. I mean, it depends on how much it took him to get started, how much it took him to start getting good at it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd say, I'd sort of say maybe two months. Kind of, you know, I'm sure it took him longer, a lot longer to master it. And he would probably say that he's still mastering it. But uh, I would say just to get started, it took two months. And as he, the cautionary tale that he made was that what he really needed to narrow down, nail down was um, 
construction costs. And, and I've, I have seen this with uh, wholesalers uh, that I've met before as well, that they just don't really know how to estimate what the rehab costs are going to be. And so yeah. they don't, they don't get the, what they have. is not a deal. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you need to make friends with the contractor. Yep. Um, Snuggle the contractor. Uh, yes. <laughs> All right. Money. How much money did it require to to get started? Or does it require to get started as a wholesaler? Um, well, the big, you know, the reason it's such a popular strategy with new people is that it's advertised as something that you can do with, it doesn't take any of your own money. I will say in my experience, and I think that this sort of bore out with what Fernando was saying, is that he needed money for marketing. Mm-hmm. And he also, I, 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 we're not going to include the cost that he spent on the mentor. Uh, he spent almost yeah. $1,000 on the mentor. But I would say you've got to have at least $2,000 in marketing. Or uh, you're just going to be doing what they call driving for dollars, where you're just driving around and, uh, you know, knocking on doors mm-hmm. and, um you know, normally what a wholesaler is doing is sending out a lot of mailers in order to get those costs down. You're going to have to start driving for dollars and just tar- get very, very targeted. So uh, I think he, about two grand is what. Yeah. Yeah. I, I that, that sounds like about right. Yeah. Time. How much time would you say he spends on his uh, wholesaling a week? We didn't really talk about specifics on that, but he says he spends a lot of time doing things and I think yeah. he's narrowing it down and narrowing it down. And also at the same time, he's increasing the amount that he's doing or has in the past increased the amount that he's doing as he shuttled tasks off to other people. So he kind of kept it high at, at a, a you know full-time job sort of time situation. So I think we're looking at this in the, the lens of family person who maybe already has a full-time job the larger scale trying to do a lot of these at the same time is probably not the, is not going to be feasible, but you know, if you're just trying to do a few here and there, then, and you have some help then you might be able to, to make it work in the wee hours between working and family. Yeah. I would say if we're going to go off of what Fernando was talking about, what he does, he said 50 to 60 hours a week. Yeah. And I would say now he is doing more than just wholesaling now. He's now doing uh, self-storage and he's doing Airbnb rental arbitrage as well. So I would say at least 40 hours of those were devoted to wholesaling. Yeah. yeah. So. so it's a. It's not a passive. It's not, it's a, not passive. a passive. No. Well, and it's, uh, this is a tough one because for a lot of people it is, a. Uh, it seems to feel like a good beginning place. And if, the people who we think are listening to our podcast are listening. It's maybe not the best fit for, for them time-wise, unless they can afford to upfront start with a team or a partner yeah. or some other sort of situation that makes it yeah. um, so that they're not doing quite so much work. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, so location, how long could he survive without actually being in vicinity of his business? Well, I would say now uh, he's gotten to the point where he has enough systems and team in place that he was able to go to Thailand for a month. He had just got back from Thailand, so at least a month. And then yeah. when we pressed him on the issue, uh, he said six months. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say for him, yeah, six months. I would say for a wholesaler who is getting started, a week. Like yeah. you, the moment you stop working, the moment you stop making income. So yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that was uh, Fernando Angelucci, and again, we we're covering his wholesaling primarily, and we thank him for his time. Yeah. We'll see you next time. And if you like this podcast, we would really appreciate it if you take just a few minutes and leave a review for us on iTunes. It's really simple to do. Just go to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash review for links and instructions. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels.